to kindergarten ready. What really matters. Kindergarten Ready is a podcast about child development in the first five years. Here, we'll try to uncover what really matters and just what it means to be kindergarten ready. Greetings, all. I'm Dr. Jean Willett, researcher, director of the Language Literacy Learning Lab, and professor of psychology at Mount Allison University. On this episode of Kindergarten Ready, What Really Matters, we return to research and do a deep dive episode into a fascinating area of study, home literacy and storybook reading. We'll consider how research can help us understand something that seems so simple, reading a storybook at home and show us how there's more to the story than meets the eye. Hmm, might be a punny type of topic. Here's my thinking this week. We just had back-to-back episodes where we heard directly from teachers with applied, practical, you know what, and at times downright inspiring suggestions about kindergarten readiness. So, in keeping with having a variety of topics and formats for this one show... I figured it was time to switch things up and go for a research-focused, deep-dive-style episode. You're stuck with just me this week, but trust me, this is actually a topic where there's a truly fascinating story. There's more to the story than meets the eye. We may have to read between the lines. The book stops here. More bang for your book. I like big books. I cannot lie. Uh, Okay, I'm done. And now, for the rest of the story. Well, what do you mean, what is it? We all know what storybooks are. But today the topic is actually storybook research. Learning to read is a complex process. It involves a variety of skills and abilities. Children must bring their existing knowledge and experiences to bear on the task of learning to read, which, for most part and for most children, begins in earnest with the introduction of formal instruction in late kindergarten or grade one. We know from prior episodes, I hope, that learning to read is related to a child's emergent literacy, mainly their phonological awareness and knowledge of letters, their knowledge about functions of print, and their oral language, specifically vocabulary. It's not surprising, then, that it's of great interest in the research world to document how and where children acquire these early skills. And one thing we should note is there is quite a bit of existing evidence that suggests that early individual differences in these skills are relatively stable from kindergarten onward. What that means is when we find children in kindergarten who vary greatly in these skills, they tend to still vary greatly in those skills in grade one and grade two and grade three. That means the child who starts off school behind in these areas tends to stay behind in these areas. And presumably, some of these skills are acquired through specific experiences at home. So it's only natural to study home literacy activities, such as storybook reading. Before we go any further, maybe it's time for a super quick recap of research methods, because it is super relevant here. Research can span from correlational design to true experimental design. Correlations, that means you take measures and you see how they relate to each other. There is no actual manipulation or treatment introduced into the environment by the researcher. You're interested in the relationship between exercise and weight loss? Well, you measure weight loss, and you measure someone's activity level, and you see how those measures statistically relate to one another. 
You're interested in video game exposure and aggressive behavior? Well, you could survey families on time spent playing video games and obtain some measure of aggressive behavior and see if those two measures are related. This is different from a true experimental design where there's a manipulation by the researcher that is directly tested. You might have one group follow exercise program one and another group follow exercise program two and then measure their weight loss. That would be an experimental design. You might have some children play a specific video game and see if that changes their behavior. In a true experimental design, a manipulation is introduced into the environment by the researcher. Now, both research types are informative, but experimental designs can speak more directly to causality because you're actually doing something and measuring the effect of that. But still, in child development, we have to rely a lot on correlational designs because many of the topics we study are difficult to do otherwise. When it comes to studying the effect of home literacy activities such as storybook reading, we can use both types of designs. Like in most areas of child development, initial research on storybooks and literacy learning were correlational, and these studies surprised, well, pretty well everybody. Why? Because studies showed that correlations between storybook reading at home and subsequent reading skills were surprisingly weak. Now, we've all seen posters, public education campaigns, etc., all telling us to read to our kids. The idea, propagated through whole language philosophy in the past, was that kids could learn to read through immersion just like they learn oral language. So the idea was, if you read to them, they'll magically learn to read. Well, it turns out learning to read doesn't quite work that way, at least not for most of us. But if you think about storybooks, they expose kids to language and context. Surely they must help kids learn oral language. And so researchers began to look more at oral language outcomes related to storybook exposure. But again, the correlations were surprisingly weak. Turns out the correlations between frequency of book reading at home and language outcomes were small and highly variable across studies. What this means is that at most, the frequency of reading accounted for less than 10% of the variance in language outcomes such as vocabulary. Hmm, that doesn't seem to make sense. And this is where we can take a deeper dive into research methodology because there is a fascinating story here. Let's think, how are you going to measure storybook reading at home? You're probably not going to hang out in someone's home and watch them, right? You're going to ask them. If you want to know how much storybook reading is happening in the home, well, you have to ask. And if you ask a family this, they can likely see that it's something that may be expected or something they may be judged on. And resultantly, they may tend to overstate how much it actually happens. This is called the social desirability effect in research, which makes the data very suspect. And sure enough, in early correlational studies, shared reading was most indexed by parents' self-reports of how frequently they read to their children. Even worse, the form of the questions used in research varied considerably across studies. In a few studies, parents are asked to indicate simply whether or not they read to their child, yes, no. I don't think many people are going to say no to that. More commonly, parents were asked how often they read to their child. Responses were sometimes collected on a Likert-type scale. That's like a four-point scale you've seen in surveys, one indicating that they read rarely, never, four indicating that they read daily or more, and two or three would be somewhere in between. In other studies, parents were asked how often they read in a specific time period. For example, how frequently have you read to your child over the course of a week? Less than half an hour? About an hour? 
more than two hours, that type of thing. In other studies, parents gave a numerical estimate of the frequency. That is, how many times did you read to your child in the past week? But regardless of the type of question used, the correlations between that and the child's language development were still quite weak. Again, likely because of social desirability effects and the really questionable validity of this data. And then came an important advancement in this area, led by Monique Seneschal, now at Carleton University in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, also my former PhD supervisor. To avoid the potential difficulties in making accurate estimates and the caveats of social desirability, Monique and her colleagues back in 1996 assessed knowledge of storybooks as a proxy measure of frequency of reading. They basically asked parents to indicate which books they recognized from a list. So instead of asking how much they read to their kids, they showed parents a list of book titles and asked them to circle the ones they recognized, based on the premise that parents who read more frequently to their child may recognize more titles from children's literature. Uh, but wait, you might be thinking parents can still lie about that. They'll just circle everything. Ah, here comes the clever part. Embedded along with all the titles of children's literature were some made-up ones, some foils, so you can actually catch the families who aren't telling the truth. And just to show how complex research like this can be and how much thought goes into it, let me read directly from the method section of this 1996 paper. Here we go. <clears throat> Quote, Titles of popular children's books were obtained from various sources. We interviewed five librarians from the children's section and surveyed two stores specializing in children's literature, as well as the children's book sections in pharmacies and large department stores. Additional titles were obtained from earlier research from 1988, where 150 parents of preschoolers were asked to list their child's favorite books. Finally, we obtained bestseller lists from the publishers of the Little Golden Book series because the price range of those books renders them accessible to parents with limited incomes. We constructed a list of over 100 book titles and then used the following criteria to reduce the list. First, we eliminated fairy tale books and books for which a movie or television version existed. Then we selected those titles that were named by more than one source. And of those titles, we selected books that could be found at the neighborhood public library or that cost less than five Canadian dollars. Now, remember, this was 1996. Okay, back to the quote. These selection criteria were used to ensure that the books in the checklist were accessible to all parents regardless of income level. The final list included 31 titles that were judged as very popular and 30 titles that were slightly less popular. The titles represented a variety of genres, such as narratives and thematically organized books, such as one about a firefighter. We created 49 foils, those are fake titles, and verified that they were not real titles by searching for the foils in the public library database. End of quote. Whew, that was a long passage. My point is, we often don't think about where the data comes from, how it's collected, and there's more to the story than we may think. Here is a very thoughtful, detailed way of estimating the frequency of reading that's happening in the home without simply asking parents how often they read. Come on, that's pretty cool. Now fast forward to 2020, and there are several such checklists used regularly in research. They're considered the gold standard of assessing home literacy. Cool. I mean, I, I love this stuff. Again, we tend not to think of what is actually done in research and how much thought goes into it. 
How do we know how many books are read at home? It's not as simple as just asking someone. So we need super creative ways of doing things like this. That's pretty cool. Now, having said all that, guess what? Still not overly strong correlations with learning to read. A little better, maybe moderate, but still not great. So then Monique Seneschal, together with her colleague Joanne Lefebvre, also from Carleton University, published what is now a landmark study in the highly esteemed journal Child Development. This was in 2002. And in this paper, they noted that there were different types of home literacy experiences. Home literacy experiences could include informal interactions with print, such as storybook reading, where the focus is on the meaning. Those were associated more with the development of children's receptive oral language, i.e. vocabulary, not reading development itself. And now this has been shown many times over since then. But recall from our vocabulary episode, vocabulary does help learning to read. But it might be a longer-term relationship. It might not be evident immediately in a research study, but it will pay off down the road. So, we have correlational research. Storybooks do matter. They do help language development, which later may help with reading. But it's not a magic wand for kids to learn to read by osmosis or immersion as proposed by whole language philosophy. That's just not the way it happens. We know that now from the science of reading research complete with clever methodology. One last thing about uh, this topic from the correlational side of things. If we go back to Monique's work uh, and this distinction between different types of home literacy activities, they pointed out that children may also be exposed to more formal literacy instruction in the home, even though it may be done indirectly. And that may be in the form of a parent reading an alphabet book. In an alphabet book, more attention is given to the actual print. In this instance, the parent may focus specifically on the print in the book by talking about the letters or providing the name and sound of specific letters. When you classify home literacy by the types of interactions, formal, meaning that you're focusing on print, for example, with alphabet books, and more informal, where you're focusing on the meaning in more narrative-type storybooks, you can start to see differential relationships. What that means is that exposure to narrative-type storybooks boosts oral language, exposure to alphabet-type books boosts reading skills. But also remember from our vocabulary episode that boost to oral language from storybooks will impact reading development, but maybe not immediately. Okay, let's go back to research methods. Correlational studies are valuable, but they do have limitations over true experimental studies where we directly do something and test its effects. Correlational studies are not introducing a treatment activity, what have you. They simply measure different variables and look for associations. Experimental designs are more powerful. There are many studies on storybooks with full, true experimental designs. This brings us to another line of research teaching studies. Early research from the 1990s, again led by Monique Seneschal and colleagues, approached the topic in a slightly different way. They taught kids new words embedded within a storybook. They basically took an existing storybook and changed up some of the words to be more rare words. So hat was replaced with fedora. Fishing was replaced with angling. Looking was replaced with gazing. So they basically introduced vocabulary that children were less likely to know. 
and they found that after being exposed to the storybook in one reading, four- and five-year-olds were able to recognize and identify those new words, match them to pictures, but they didn't seem to use those new words in their expressive vocabulary. Since then, research has shown repetitive reading helps, as does making the reading more interactive. In a 1997 study, Minik Senechel compared what happened if a story was only read once versus what would happen if it was read three times. And what was the difference between just reading a story to a child and reading a story with additional conversation and questions during the reading? Well, it was found that both repetition and more interactive readings increased word learning. Many others have done similar studies since. We actually just did one. Actually, Uh, My lab, we were doing a study in kindergarten looking at teaching non-words embedded within storybooks. So instead of using rare words, we just made up words and embedded them within storybooks. Uh, And we were actually partway through the study when we were shut down by COVID back in March. Ah, March, the good old days when you could still do research with children in schools. Mm, But I digress. In that study, we were actually showing that reading a story three times to a child with these made-up words in it resulted in significant vocabulary learning. And here's the biggie. The novel part of this study is we then taught the children how to read those words. And if they were shown the words that they were exposed to in the storybook, they learned to read those words more quickly than they did other words. So there was actually a direct link between storybook exposure and learning to read. We just had to dig a little to find it. And there's also a robust literature out there from others demonstrating that children learn vocabulary from repeated exposure within storybooks. A smaller number of studies have shown that learning can be increased with the addition of extra dialogue and elaborated semantic type teaching where the focus is on the definition, putting the words into sentences, etc. And in our most recent research project that was shut down by COVID, we were showing that there was a direct impact on learning to read as a result of this new vocabulary learning that was happening during storybook exposure. When we consider the early correlational studies combined with the more recent experimental studies, we now have a very clear picture of the impact of home literacy and storybook reading on oral language development and on learning to read. So just to recap, Thanks to research, we know that shared storybook reading provides several benefits to young children, mainly boosting their oral language in the area of vocabulary and also providing direct impact in learning to read if the focus is on alphabet books, but also an impact on learning how to read as a result of that vocabulary learning. Beyond that, there's other benefits to young children, including parent-child bonding, fostering a love of reading, and learning to sustain attention. Much of a child's developing lexicon, that is their internal dictionary of words, is encountered through everyday conversation, but shared storybook reading provides a complementary source of vocabulary stimulation. And yes, this does help them learn how to read. What can we do about it? Well, we can take those methods used in research and implement them in the home. Here are a few things we know from research. Or, as a take on our podcast title, Word Learning from Storybooks. What really matters? It helps to read the same story more than once. Much research has shown that three repetitions seem to be especially effective. And studies usually are doing those readings within a week. So repeating the same storybook three times within a week seems ideal. 
We can also think of word types. Often the focus in reading is on nouns and on verbs, but books are great for descriptive language or adjectives. Very important for a rich vocabulary. And how you read matters. A more interactive reading style and use of what are referred to as dialogic techniques, that's things like pointing to pictures, providing definitions, asking children questions as you read, putting words into categories, brainstorming similar sounding words or brainstorming words that mean the same thing. These type of activities significantly influence the number of new words children learn from shared storybook reading. Many different dialogic techniques have been employed in the research, and they can be used in the home and the classroom. Our research shows that having children say words out loud and in sentences also helps them learn to read those words later. So the moral of today's story, do storybooks matter? Yeah, they do. And research matters. Because of clever research methodology, because of research studies that have built upon each other, we now have a much more clear picture of what storybooks do. In closing, there are so many children's books out there. Grab some and start reading. I mentioned before, in, in, in our home, we were big fans of Kevin Henke books. Uh, I think he has a wonderful way with oral language. But basically, the best books to read are the ones that children like. We always tried to keep a shelf full of books, and we let our daughter pick. And Yes, sometimes we'd have to sigh and roll our eyes when she'd pick the same book over and over and over again. But as we just talked about, research actually shows repeated readings to be beneficial. We had a whole shelf of Dr. Seuss books, which are sound-based. Not a whole lot of vocabulary learning going on there, right? Hop on Pop doesn't teach that much vocabulary, but it was a wonderful sound structure book. We also had a shelf of more narrative books, Kevin Henke books, Robert Munch, other children's authors. And sometimes she'd pick those books, right? We'd roll with whatever she picked. Because really, we can never underestimate the power of developing a love of reading. And with that said, I think it's time to say our goodbyes for the week, that is. So that's, that sounded a little final there, didn't it? No, 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 I didn't mean that. Thanks for listening. That's what I meant to say. And thanks to those who continue to help us spread the word about our show and continue to leave positive reviews on the various podcasts and internet platforms out there. It is truly appreciated. I hope everyone is staying safe and we'll catch you next time. Cheers, everybody. You've been listening to Kindergarten Ready, What Really Matters, a podcast about child development in the first five years. Kindergarten Ready is a production of the Language Literacy Learning Lab. For more information about the show, check us out at www.kindergartenreadywhatreallymatters.com. Kindergarten Ready!